Hello and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall, Episode 3, The Seat of an Empire. Welcome back to the program. On the last episode, we discussed the founding of the Tammany Society in May 1789 and took a look at some of the organization's early activities and iconography. For the next couple of episodes, I think it would be appropriate to take a step back for some context and consider what New York City looked like in the years immediately following the American Revolution. What was going on in this place that was poised to become, in time, the largest and most important city in the newly independent country? Just a quick programming note. I had originally planned the next two episodes as a single show. However, things were starting to get a little unwieldy, so I decided to slice things down the middle and make this a two-parter. This episode will look at the general social and economic situation in New York during the 1780s. Next time, we'll shift our focus to the political scene during those years. The good news is that that episode is pretty much all set, so it should be ready to drop in the next few days. Okay, on with the show. So, what did New York City look like as the Tammany Society was formed in the late 1780s? First, at this early date, we should all ditch the image we might have in mind of New York City's five boroughs. Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, and Staten Island were all well beyond the city's orbit. New York City itself was confined to the southern tip of the island of Manhattan, and most settlement was concentrated below Canal Street. Broadway, the city's main thoroughfare, was only paved as far as Vesey Street, for reference that's around the World Trade Center. Even Greenwich Village was considered a separate town, though it was part of New York County. Next, we should also remember that New York was still very much in the process of rebuilding from wartime devastation. New York was as badly damaged by the lingering effects of the Revolutionary War as any city in the Union. In the early stages of the fighting, New York City and the western portion of Long Island had been a major theater in the conflict between the Continental Army and British forces. However, by the end of 1776, Washington had been forced to retreat across the Hudson into New Jersey. New York City would remain in British hands until Evacuation Day in November of 1783. The consequences of this extended occupation were significant. The war years were something of a demographic roller coaster in New York. In 1775, right before the outbreak of the Revolution, the city's total population was about 25,000 people. Over the course of 1776, thousands of pro-British loyalists fled the city as revolutionary activity increased and the city was later host to Washington's army. By the end of the year, however, it was the Patriots' turn to flee as the Continental Army was resoundingly trounced. Almost immediately, New York became a center of British power in America, the so-called Gibraltar of the Western Hemisphere. This brought about a mass influx of loyalists who had been forced out of the rest of the 13 colonies. From a low of just 5,000 people in 1776, the city's population ballooned to more than 30,000 in 1779. 
Near the end of the war in 1782, it was estimated that a grand total of 50,000 Tories had settled in New York City and the surrounding areas. This includes thousands of enslaved people who had joined the British cause in hopes of claiming their freedom. Additionally, thousands of British soldiers regularly passed through the city on their way to the front lines. For a time, the city's elites enjoyed the return of high society under the command of fun-loving British General William Howe. An influx of aristocratic British officers meant that there was no shortage of balls, theatrical spectacles, or fox hunting. A young naval captain by the name of Horatio Nelson was stationed in New York for a time, and he was well on his way to earning his reputation as both a brilliant military tactician and something of a bon vivant. The high point of British New York social life occurred in 1781 when Prince William Henry, the future King William IV, visited the city. Lavish balls were held in his honor, and the prince particularly enjoyed skating on the freshwater pond in today's Chinatown. However, for the majority of the population, British occupation was far less pleasant. As you can imagine, the city's massive population boom put a heavy strain on resources. Food and housing costs soared. Residents were often forced to share accommodations in miserable conditions. Upon returning to the city at the end of the war, James Duane, a future mayor, commented that his houses looked, quote, as if they had been inhabited by savages and wild beasts, end quote. Even staunch loyalists resented the haughty mindset of the occupying forces. Conflicts between locals and British soldiers were common. One mercenary German officer stated that he, quote, could narrate many and very frightful occurrences of theft, fraud, robbery, and murder by the English soldiers, which their love of drink excited, end quote. In response to the restive mindset increasingly on evidence within New York, British authorities put the city under martial law and cracked down on freedom of the press and economic activity. These difficult conditions were exacerbated by two devastating fires in 1776 and 1778. The first was started under suspicious circumstances, right as the American army was leaving the city. There has long been speculation that the departing Americans set fire to the city in order to deprive the British of New York's resources upon occupation. Most of New York east of Broadway, including Trinity Church, was burned. In total, about a quarter of the city's dwellings would be destroyed. Looking back, one commentator remembered the burned-out ruins which, quote, cast their grim shadows upon the pavement, imparting an unearthly aspect to the street, unquote. Most infamously, British-occupied New York was home to a number of prison ships in Wallabout Bay, near today's Brooklyn Navy Yards in East River. During the war, thousands of American POWs were taken to these ships and held in inhumane conditions. One survivor recollected that his fellow prisoners were, quote, mere walking skeletons, overrun with lice from head to foot. In total, some 11,500 men died aboard these ships. 
Most of their bodies were tossed overboard unceremoniously, and locals would report bones washing up on the shore for years to come. Related to the British occupation was the fact that New York was something of a hotbed of loyalist sentiment. Just a quick word on terminology. Those individuals in the 13 colonies who favored maintaining the existing relationship with Great Britain are generally referred to as loyalists or Tories. Their opponents, who favored independence, have been dubbed patriots or Whigs. I'll be using all of these terms, so I thought I'd get a quick clarification out there. Anyhow, uh, many of New York's most prominent citizens were committed loyalists both before and during the War of Independence. As a port city, New York's leading merchants, lawyers, and financiers recognized that their economic well-being was based on transatlantic trading links with Britain. Unsurprisingly, these figures would generally cast a skeptical eye towards any movement that would disrupt the status quo. For these reasons, New York has been dubbed the nursery of loyalty to the mother country. Many of New York's wealthiest and most respected families, including the Delanceys and the Phillipses, were staunch Tories throughout the war. Oliver Delancey, for example, organized thousands of New York loyalists into an irregular military unit known as Delancey's Brigade. Several other loyalist units soon cropped up in the city. Thousands of Tories uh, joined the King's American Regiment, the King's Orange Rangers, the Loyal American Regiment, the British Legion, and others. These forces saw combat in theaters across America. Upon the British defeat in 1783, many of these individuals were faced with the confiscation of their property and a total loss of status in the New Republic. In this climate, many Tories opted to leave their homes for good and resettle in Britain or the Canadian colonies. As you can imagine, this was a bitter choice for many Tories. The mood was captured by Loyalist William Bayard, who lashed out at the revolutionaries. Quote, God damn them, I thought it would come to this. What is to become of me, sir? I am totally ruined. End quote. With independence came the hard task of rebuilding the war-torn city. As we've seen, New York's population fluctuated significantly during and after the Revolutionary War. However, by the time of the first post-independence census in 1790, the city was booming, and New York had emerged as the largest city in the young United States, with a population of nearly 33,000. I should note that uh, Philadelphia remained the country's largest metropolitan area when surrounding communities are factored in. I have a lot of friends in Philly, and I should give the city its due. New York would not clearly establish itself as America's leading city until the 19th century. Despite New York City's rising population, New York State remained, like the rest of the country, predominantly rural. Most of the state's population was concentrated north of the city in the Hudson Valley. The city's population of 33,000 was dwarfed by Albany County, which was home to more than 75,000 people, and Dutchess County, with more than 45,000 residents. I'm sorry, I realize I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, and that doesn't always make for the most scintillating audio experience. However, 
I do think this population distribution is worth noting because it shows that New York City was not yet the center of the state's gravity. This meant that New York City did not have the heft to sway statewide elections single-handedly. As a result, city-based political organizations would always have to keep one eye on forging links with upstate interests. This will be worth keeping in mind as Tammany emerges as the most important political organization in New York City in the coming decades. Economically and socially, New York was well on its way towards developing its reputation as a city of business and commerce. New York, or New Amsterdam, had been a major trading hub since the days of Dutch settlement in the 17th century. During the colonial period, New York's merchants prospered by trading food and manufactured goods to the British Caribbean. However, after the Revolution, the British effectively blocked Americans from trading in these markets. This was, of course, a significant setback for New York's merchant class. However, the post-independence settlement also presented new exciting opportunities. Prior to the Revolution, American merchants were, for the most part, prohibited from trading outside the British Empire. By the 1770s, these restrictions had become a major source of frustration for merchants in the 13 colonies. Now, however, Americans were free to explore markets that had previously been off-limits, such as China, Russia, and continental Europe. Many ambitious merchants would soon make their fortunes in these areas. Among those to grow wealthy in the China trade was John Pintard, who we mentioned last time as one of the Tammany Society's founders and the author of Tammany's first constitution. Before long, the waterfront of Manhattan was revved up once again. Comparing America's two largest cities in this period, one French observer noted, quote, New York is less citified than Philadelphia, but the bustle of trade is far greater, end quote. New York's merchants were also laying the groundwork for the city's rise as a center of American finance. By February 1784, a group of wealthy citizens gathered in a coffee house in Lower Manhattan and proposed the formation of the Bank of New York. These men envisioned the bank as a national rival to the Philadelphia-based Bank of North America. In addition to these merchants, the Bank of America was backed with some serious political muscle. Alexander Hamilton, while on his way to becoming the father of the American financial system, was a staunch proponent of the plan. Alexander McDougall, a one-time leader of the New York Sons of Liberty, would serve as the bank's first president. The city's prospects received a further boost in 1785 when the Continental Congress decided to meet in New York as the country's provisional capital. For the next few years, New York City would serve as both the national and New York state capital, so that means that city, state, and national government officials would all be crammed into City Hall and nearby buildings such as Francis Tavern for the next few years. For the time being, New York did not gain a huge amount of net prestige by serving as the seat of the national government. Under the Articles of Confederation, most power was held by the states, and many of the country's most prominent figures chose to stay closer to home. 
However, that would all change in 1789 with the enactment of the new Constitution and Washington's subsequent inauguration as America's first president. Before long, almost all of the major figures of the founding generation converged on the city as members of either the cabinet or the first Congress. For a time, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Hancock, and others would all live and work within a few blocks of each other in lower Manhattan. Perhaps apocryphally, Washington referred to his new capital city as the seat of an empire. The federal government would soon move south, first to Philadelphia and then to the newly founded city of Washington, D.C. However, at least according to legend, Washington's remark would live on in New York's nickname, the Empire State. New York in the 1780s was also recognized as America's most diverse and cosmopolitan city. New York City was already a hub of immigration and had more than twice as many foreign-born residents than Philadelphia. Many of these newcomers were ambitious and relatively well-to-do emigres from the British Isles. A number of them would make a lasting impact on the city. Scottish merchant Archibald Gracie, for example, settled in New York in this period. After growing wealthy in the shipping industry, Gracie built the mansion that bears his name and now serves as the mayor's official residence. No figure would match the long-term impact of a young man who arrived in New York in 1784 from the small town of Waldorf, then part of the Holy Roman Empire. Initially starting a small merchant company in Lower Manhattan, John Jacob Astor would, in time, make his fortune in the fur trade. He and his descendants will pop up throughout the rest of New York's history. Of course, not all immigrants in this period were quite so grand. Though we're still a ways off from the mass immigration that reshaped New York's population during the 19th century, many ordinary people did come to America in these years seeking greater economic opportunity and freedom from persecution. Notably, the 1780s and 90s saw an increase in Irish, particularly Irish Catholic, immigration to the United States. Sectarian strife spread across Ireland in the 1790s, especially in the northern province of Ulster. For many Irish, the United States seemed like a safe haven beyond the reach of British power. Catholics, in particular, were attracted to the newly independent country's commitment to religious tolerance and separation of church and state. As we'll see, these newcomers did not always receive the warmest welcome. Many American Protestants were just as inclined towards anti-Catholic bigotry as their British counterparts. It would not take long for Irish immigration to become a major point of political contention on the American scene. Of course, these were not the only people you could find in New York in the 1780s. Throughout the colonial period, New York had stood out from most of its northern counterparts in its commitment to slavery. Much of the colony's enslaved population was concentrated on the large estates of the Hudson Valley and Long Island. However, by the mid-18th century, more than 20% of the city's population was black, and the majority of them were enslaved. 
During the revolution, New York had seen a sharp increase in its free black population. The British offered freedom to any enslaved people who joined their cause against the rebellious Americans. As a result, some 3,000 African Americans made their way to New York while the city was under British occupation. New York became known as an island of freedom in a sea of slavery. Following the American victory, General Guy Carleton, the last British commander in New York, refused, to his credit, to turn these people over. In conversation with George Washington, Carleton said that it would be, quote, a dishonorable violation of public faith to return these individuals to bondage. Ultimately, thousands of black loyalists were evacuated, mostly going to Nova Scotia. In time, some of the former black Tories would help settle Sierra Leone, the colony established as a home for formerly enslaved people from around the British Empire. After the war, with New York back in American hands, the city rebuilt its ties to slavery. By the mid-1780s, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Rhode Island had all either abolished slavery or implemented plans for its gradual abolition. New York and New Jersey remained the only states north of the Mason-Dixon line that had failed to pass any kind of emancipation plan. John Jay had unsuccessfully pushed for a limited gradual emancipation plank in the Revolution-era state constitution of 1777, Similar efforts went down to in defeat in the state legislature throughout the 1780s. Ultimately, New York did not implement gradual emancipation until 1799, when a state legislator by the name of Aaron Burr helped shepherd a bill through the state senate and assembly. However, uh, full emancipation did not arrive in New York until 1827. By 1790, New York State had more than 21,000 slaves, by far the largest slave population of any northern state. New York City was home to about 3,000 black people. About a third of this population was free, and New York was home to one of the country's most vibrant free black communities. These people made their homes in neighborhoods throughout the city, at this time, a substantial free black community had developed around Collect Pond, near what would later become the Five Points neighborhood. Still, around 2,000 people were held in slavery in New York City. Unlike rural areas, where slave ownership was concentrated among a relatively small group of large landowners, one in five households in the cities had slaves. Even one out of every eight artisans were slaveholders. The city's workshops, breweries, and shipbuilders all depended on slave labor. In time, many leading figures within the Tammany Society, including Aaron Burr, would call for the abolition of slavery in New York and across America. However, we should not lose sight of just how pervasive slavery was throughout most levels of New York society in this period. All right, then, let's wrap things up at this point. This was New York as it appeared by the end of the 1780s, for better and for worse. 
It was a city that had been largely hollowed out by war and occupation. The task of reconstruction would be daunting. At the same time, the flight of many loyalists, often among New York's wealthiest and most prominent citizens, created ample uh, opportunities for young and ambitious upstarts to rise. New York was also a city undergoing a boom in both population and revitalized economic growth. This growth was, at least in part, dependent on both the arrival of new immigrants from Europe and the reestablishment of slavery after independence. Next time, we'll take a look at the political situation that developed to try and govern this dynamic city. In the meantime, as always, please do get in touch with any thoughts or feedback. You can email me at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com or follow along at Twitter and Instagram. Also, I can confirm that all episodes are now up and running on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. So please feel free to listen over there and rate and review if the mood should strike. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.